You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, legendary special education teacher at the Rochester, New Hampshire Middle School and chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Arbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is July 2nd, 2023, and this is episode 232 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to hear a conversation about North Head Lighthouse out in the Pacific Northwest. I want to wish everyone a happy 4th of July. Do you have any plans for the holiday, Michelle? Not that I know of, not yet. We usually do a barbecue at my brother, so I'm sure mm-hmm. that will happen, but we'll see. Okay. Hopefully the weather gets better around these parts. Charlotte, my wife and I usually go to, to a park in Rye, Rye, New Hampshire, down the road here, where they have a nice fireworks display. Uh, why don't we get right into today's interview? And Michelle, can you help me introduce it? Sure, Jeremy. The first lighthouse in the Pacific Northwest was established in 1856 on the north side of the entrance to the Columbia River at Cape Disappointment in the state of Washington. Highland blocked the view of the light from the north, so Congress appropriated funds for a second lighthouse at North Head, just two miles north of Cape Disappointment. North Head Lighthouse, a 60-foot-tall brick tower with a sandstone base, began service in 1898 with its light 194 feet above the water. North Head Lighthouse is within Cape Disappointment State Park, which features more than 2,000 acres of camping, hiking trails, and more. Washington State Parks took ownership of North Head Light Station in 2012. There's also a group called Keepers of the North Head Lighthouse, which is dedicated to the preservation of the site. The lighthouse has undergone a major restoration in recent years. The Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center stands high on the cliffs of the state park. The Interpretive Center gets its name from the fact that the Lewis and Clark expedition reached the mouth of the Columbia River and the Pacific Ocean nearby in 1805. The center features historic exhibits, a short film presentation, a gift shop, and a glassed-in observation deck with views of the river, headlands, and the ocean. Also on display is a first-order Fresnel lens that served in both of the local lighthouses at different times. Stephen Wood is an exhibit project specialist, and Alex McMurray is a historic preservation planner for Washington State Parks. Both of them joined me for the interview we're about to hear. So let's listen to our conversation now. I'm speaking today with Alex McMurray and Stephen Wood, who are involved with North Head Lighthouse, among other things. Before we start the interview here, I want to thank Kristen Quirk, who's also with the the State Park there and the Interpretive Center we're going to be talking about. Kristen had a great deal to do with setting up this interview, but she wasn't able to actually take part in the interview today. So I just want to acknowledge her. So Alex and Stephen, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. So first of all, pretty obvious question, but how did Cape Disappointment get its name? I will I will gladly jump in. And I would preface that by saying what's in a name. Cape Disappointment has had many names throughout history. The indigenous people native to the area, the Chinook, referred to it as Ka'is. In later times, in the late 18th century, 1775, a Spanish navigator by the name of Bruno Hasita gave the name Cabo San Roque, or Roque, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced. And 
A few years after Bruno Hasida, as far as we are aware, was the first European to see the mouth of the Columbia River, a British explorer ventured into the area by the name of John Mears. And in 1788, there was, let's call it a theory, that a river existed on the northwest coast as laid down by Bruno Hasida. And so when John Mears found himself off the mouth of the river in 1788, he did not think it was a river at all. He was not able to find the channel, the deepest part of the river. And so he, and I will paraphrase his journal, he wrote that disappointment continued to follow us and no river as that laid down by Hasida exists. So in 1788, the name Cape Disappointment was given by John Mears, and it stuck. Even though four years later, an American would successfully find the channel of the Columbia River and give it the name Cape Hancock. But the name Cape Disappointment stuck in uh-huh. 1788 and John Mears. Cape Disappointment, definitely a catchier name uh, than Cape Hancock. There's a lot of things named after Hancock. There are too many things named Disappointment. Uh, And uh, I just want to mention, as I'm sure you know, Lighthouse Buffs will certainly recognize the names of uh, Hasida and Mears. Uh, There are Oregon lighthouses named for both of them. Uh, Hasida Head being, I think, one of the most iconic lighthouses of the Northwest, certainly. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, before we talk more about the lighthouses, there's also a huge uh, connection in the area there to Lewis and Clark, the Lewis and Clark expedition. Can you explain that? Yes. So the Lewis and Clark expedition from 1804 to 1806 was Thomas Jefferson's effort to find the Northwest Passage, or I guess the same passage that both Hasida and Mears sought out. This was a waterway once believed to exist that crossed the North American continent. And by 1803 in the Louisiana Purchase, there was thought and belief that the Columbia River laid down by Robert Gray in 1792 might connect with the Missouri River. So Thomas Jefferson sends Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery up the Missouri to find that hopefully short portage, which does not exist, between the Missouri and the Columbia. And then the Corps eventually made their way down the Columbia River, arriving in the lower river in November of 1805 and gaining, as William Clark would write, a full view of the ocean. Excellent. Good summing up of that. Uh, And of course, you have the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center there, which we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes. But why was a lighthouse needed there at the mouth of the Columbia River in the 1850s? Well, when I was discussing how Cape Disappointment got its name and mentioning several explorers, including Hasida, Mears, and Gray, in addition to being explorers, they were also fur traders. The fur trade was at its peak, you might say, around um, the the turn of the 18th to 19th centuries. And after Robert Gray put the Columbia River on the map for Europeans and Americans, more fur traders started to come to the mouth of the Columbia River to collect furs. You go through time a little bit, and even though the fur trade was dwindling, 
more and more ships still were arriving at the Columbia River. You couple that with the California gold rush in the late 1840s, and all of a sudden, there is a huge desire for many Northwest goods, primarily lumber, salmon, and oysters. Well, in order to obtain these goods, ships would have to transit the mouth of the Columbia River, the bar, as it's called. And that bar gained a rather notorious nickname over time, becoming referred to as the Graveyard of the Pacific, with many, many shipwrecks uh, recorded throughout history. And as early as, I believe, the 1840s, it was identified by the United States Exploring Expedition under the command of Lieutenant Charles Wilkes that a lighthouse would be needed on Cape Disappointment. So several years later, one was finally built. You just mentioned uh, the Graveyard of the Pacific there, the uh, large number of shipwrecks. Are there one or two maybe? I know it's, it's probably hard to pick. But uh, one or two or maybe three of the most uh, significant, historically significant or interesting, at least, uh, shipwrecks around there? Uh, well, there, there are many to choose from. It, it yeah. is true. Um, but I will start with, and this coincides with the USXX, the United States Exploring Expedition. I believe it was 1841 and a... A group of ships from this larger armada was sent to explore the mouth of the Columbia River. And the Peacock was one of those ships. Well, the Peacock ran into trouble on the Columbia River bar, struck a sandbar. All hands were rescued by the local indigenous people, the Chinook and the Clatsop. Unfortunately, the ship, the Peacock, was a complete loss and was was left on the bar but not without ascribing a um, a name to the sandbar that it ran aground on that still holds to this day peacock spit is still a navigational hazard at the mouth of the columbia river and the name was given from that shipwreck in 1841 as the cape disappointment lighthouse was under construction a ship a bark the Oriole was bringing supplies and the first lens or beacon that would be used in the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse to complete its construction. And unfortunately, just below within sight of the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse, the Oriole also ran aground. All hands were saved, but the materials, the supplies, and the first lens to put in that lighthouse were lost at the mouth of the Columbia River. So the Peacock, the Oriole, and the last one that I will mention was a ship by the name of the Admiral Benson. And the Admiral Benson was a steamship carrying passengers very similar to the Titanic. And the Admiral Benson ran aground on the beach right out in front of Cape Disappointment State Park, right below the North Head Lighthouse. And that beach still bears the name Benson Beach in relation to the Admiral Benson that ran aground and provided some supplies to lighthouse keepers and their families. Ah, let's uh, talk a little bit more about the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse. It actually has the distinction of being the first lighthouse in the Pacific Northwest 
1856? Is that when it was established? Yeah. Correct. Uh, and it's also, uh, so it's the first first lighthouse in the Pacific Northwest and the oldest operating lighthouse on the West Coast, if I have that correct. Well, Point Pinos Lighthouse down in San Francisco might give us a run for that. I believe they have been in operation since 1854. Oh, That's okay. That proves you can't believe what you read on the internet. I've been to Point Pinos, so I should I should know that. I I wrote a book on West Coast lighthouses, so I should know that. But <laughs> um, thank you for that clarification. So it's one of the oldest operating lighthouses on the West Coast, certainly. Yeah. Um, so you just talked about the the wreck of the Oriole uh, involved in the uh, construction of the lighthouse. Anything else you want to say about the the challenge of building a lighthouse in that location? Well. In the 1850s, Ilwaco, Washington was a fairly remote area. So you couple that with the gold rush that is happening in California, and it was difficult to recruit and retain um, workers to build the lighthouse. Um, in addition to that, and admittedly, my, my notes are a bit fuzzy, and I was not able to locate good source material for this, but rem remembering from my earlier readings, the conditions for the construction workers were horrific. There was little to no shelter. Or the shelter that would have been available would have been the shelter they could build or were building if they could find places to sequester themselves in the lighthouse. Payment for these workers was also shortcoming or took longer to arrive than anticipated. And in addition, the, the very first residence that was built for the keeper was only built for one keeper and the my my notes um, from that time period i was reminded that um, oftentimes in the winter which here in the pacific northwest we are known for very wet winters the basement of that resident was subject to flooding and standing water um, so in those early years of the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse, both with construction and for the first keepers soon thereafter, they were pretty rough conditions, remote, uh, without all the supplies that you would have needed. A little bit more about Cape Disappointment Lighthouse here. The light station was a, a family station. Is there anything that stands out from that period for you? Any stories of uh, life there that really stand out? Uh, there is um, a really good one, and I will do my absolute best to, uh, to, keep, to keep it short because I really like this story. And that would involve the story of second assistant keeper George Easterbrook or Esterbrook. I'm not sure of the pronunciation of his name. And to begin that story, I need to give a little background on the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse. It is a 53-foot-tall lighthouse. It has a focal plane, so the distance from mean average water up to the, the lens was 220 feet above the, above the water. It has an attached workroom that's not original, but is an upgrade from the original wooden structure. Um, it's a masonry lighthouse with a smooth stucco exterior, and it has two galleries at the lantern room. The galleries are these catwalks around the lantern. And it has a lower gallery and an upper gallery. The upper gallery is directly outside of the lantern room, and it is connected to the lower gallery by a, a narrow spiral staircase. And then access to the lower gallery is through uh, 
like a ship's hatch. And George Esterbrook was um, on duty during um, one of the Northwest gales that we are known for. And for whatever reason, perhaps it was salt spray, maybe it was a bit of hail, I'm not sure, but Mr. Estabrook went outside, went through the hatch to the lower gallery, up to the upper gallery, and began to clean the windows, as would have been expected of keepers at the time. If the windows were not transparent enough, that light would not have emitted the brightness. So Keeper Estabrook was doing his due diligence. And I can only imagine what he must have thought when he heard the loud slam of the lower hatch door close. From his account, Keeper Estabrook climbs down from the upper gallery to the lower and checks the hatch door, only to find that the interior latches had fallen shut when the door slammed. In the upper gallery of the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse, there is no hatch. So Keeper Estabrook's one and only means of returning into the lighthouse had just closed to him. Coupled with that is his knowledge that pretty soon he's going to have to do regular maintenance to that lens, whether it was trimming the wicks or adding more kerosene that they would have used in those early days. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but Keeper Esterbrook realized that he needed to get back into the lighthouse immediately. And the one thing that was left to him was the copper lightning rod extending from the uppermost finial of the lantern down to the ground. And so, hand over hand, Keeper Esterbrook shimmied down the lightning rod only to have a gust blow him 90 degrees at one point in time, as he claims, <sighs> works his way down, hits terra firma, and is able to successfully enter the station only to continue his duties. And I can imagine that um, that was one of those days when Mr. George Estabrook learned a very valuable lesson of being a <laughs> lighthouse keeper at Cape Disappointment. <laughs> I guess so. Wow. I'm nervous just listening to that. Jeez, that's incredible. I, he had to be in pretty good shape to be able to do that, I think. I would think so, yes. So uh, let's talk just a little bit about the lightship that was near there. There was a lightship stationed off the mouth of the Columbia River starting in 1892, if I have that correct. It was the first lightship on the West Coast, if I have that correct. Uh, hopefully I do. The final vessel that served there was the WLV-604, uh, and that actually still survives. Uh, could you tell us a little bit? To, first of all, do I have my facts right about the history of that lightship? And where is the WLV-604 today? I believe you do have uh, those facts correct about the lightship. I can tell you that the vessel is currently located at the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria, Oregon, which for the listeners of this podcast, if you're ever in the lower Columbia River vicinity, this museum is well worth your time. Mm -hmm. um, Columbia River Maritime Museum truly speaks to the maritime history of our region. And that's where the lightship is located and can be toured. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I second what you say about the museum and the lightship. I stated at a hotel just down along the river there, very close within walking distance of the, uh, the museum. The lighthouses, again, Cape Disappointment Lighthouse and North Head Lighthouse are only 
a few miles apart from each other. They're relatively close. So why was a, a second lighthouse in that area at the mouth of the river? Why was a second lighthouse needed at North Head? Alex, do you want to take this question? Sure, I can take this. Um, the Cape Disappointment Light was, was working fairly well, but the ships approaching the river from the north couldn't see it until very late. And so they made the decision that the, they needed more visibility for ships from the north. And so that's why North Head was, was constructed. So um, the first keeper at North Head was Alexander, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Pesonin or Pesonin? It's Pesonin. Pesonin. Okay. My second guess was right. Uh, he was there for 26 years, which is kind of an unusually long time at one light station. Uh, I understand he had a, a woman assistant keeper, I think it was a, for a fairly brief period of time, uh, the only woman keeper in that station's history. Uh, do we know much about her? Unfortunately, no. But what we do know is that her name was Maybell Bretherton. Um, she is the only female ever to serve at North Head. And what we know is that she transferred to North Head from the Cape Blanco Lighthouse near Port Orford, Oregon, which is down the coast a little bit near Southern Oregon. She was a mother of three. She was also a widow. And she had assumed the role of second assistant keeper at Cape Blanco after her, her husband, Bernard, had passed away. And as one who has studied the history of lighthouse keepers, and I'm also a parent, I can only imagine what life for her must have been like. Lighthouse keepers lived um, very regimented lives. Uh, the work was hard. Sometimes the work was at undesirable hours. And on top of that, she had to raise her children. So she was a champion among lighthouse keepers for the years that she served at both Cape Blanco and in the two years at North Head. But then she resigned from the lighthouse service in 1907. We know that she moved to Portland, Oregon. And at that point, her story becomes elusive and we lose track of her. You brought to mind something uh, we haven't talked about, but these places, both these light stations and pretty much uh, many of these locations on the West Coast in those days were pretty isolated. These people were kind of uh, pioneers. The builders of these lighthouses and the keepers and families living at these places were really pioneers in a lot of ways. Well, I, I can, speaking to North Head, um, I can tell you that in the very early days, getting from the lighthouse to town was an all-day affair. The main road from the lighthouse that would connect with another road that took them into town was a plank road. So this was a, a wooden road, a board road. And I have heard reports that and seen photos that these planks were laid perpendicular to the direction of travel. So that would have been a very bumpy ride. And I've also read reports of uh, when, when supplies were needed. I mean, that was you know, a full day affair to go into town, get the supplies you needed, and then come back. But that also, once a week, a grocery store would, would make a visit to the lighthouse. And if you didn't have your list ready to go then, <laughs> well, you were in trouble. Um, they needed to be self-sufficient. At North Head, uh, we know that they had a garden. We know they kept chickens. And we know of at least one cow that lived there. So, yes, comparing them to 
pioneers to settlers, I would say that's an accurate comparison. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was wondering how they got the cow there. I don't know if you know any story behind that. I know at some places on the East Coast, they brought cows by water. And they, the cows, I've heard in some cases, had to swim the last part of the, the trip to some of these places, which must have been really interesting. Uh, one daughter of a keeper in Maine actually said, you haven't lived until you've shared a rowboat with a, uh, a seasick cow. I don't know if any of that applies to, to out there, but uh, yeah, these places were were really, really remote, as you said. So let's get back to uh, Keeper Pesson and the first keeper at Northhead. I understand he had a, a really uh, awful uh, personal tragedy near the end of his career. I don't know if you have any comment on that. Uh, I do. Um, and and briefly, I'd, I'd like to step back from that quickly and, and just talk about Alexander Pessinen. Mm-hmm. who was the first principal keeper um, that was assigned to the North Head Lighthouse. And he transferred from the Tillamook Rock Lighthouse, which is one of those offshore lighthouses. Um, it's about a little over a mile off of Seaside, Oregon. And he transferred to Tillamook Rock. He began his service as the third assistant keeper in the early 1890s. I think it was 1891. and it speaks to his abilities because from 1891 to 1894, he rose from third assistant all the way to principal keeper of Tillamook Rock Lighthouse. This was, as I have read before, one of the quote unquote stag stations, meaning that only men were allowed at the station. Their families were not allowed to be there. And in, I think it was 1896, Alexander married Mary Watson. And I can only imagine as the principal keeper of Tillamook Rock, he would have been aware of the new light station that was soon to be built at a place called Northhead, not far away from where he was. Families would have been welcome there. And he and Mary transferred to Northhead in 1898 to put the Northhead Lighthouse into service. We know a lot about Mary's life and Alexander's life because their descendants, while they did not have children, we know that Mary had a couple of brothers. I believe she had siblings. And and so out of respect to her descendants, I, I will, I guess, be vague. In, in a little bit of, of what happened because over time in the late 20th, early 21st centuries, present day, um, Mary's story has, has taken on a shape that in my 14 years at Northhead, I tried to allow to rest in peace. Late towards the end of Alexander Pessinen's career, his wife, Mary, died. And there have been a lot of speculations about her death and unfortunately, about her afterlife. I can't speak to that, um, but it was a tragic experience. And we do know that later lighthouse keepers, um, it was not a pleasant topic of conversation around the station. And I can only imagine um, his wife of over 20 years passed away under tragic circumstances and, and he was left to carry on. So unfortunately, her story took on what I consider to be a a negative connotation in present day. But we do know that she had her own life. 
And we do know that for those descendants that are still alive, we, we do not want to disparage her memory in any way. So his, his wife did die while he was on duty. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for your delicate explanation of that. And I completely respect everything you're, you're saying about that. But uh, again, thank you. It's, a, it's an important part of the history there, but definitely something we don't want to exploit in, in any way. Any other stories about North Head Lighthouse, about life there over the years that kind of, before we move on to other subjects, anything else that kind of stands out? Washington State Parks has been very fortunate in that Cape Disappointment has, uh, well, in some iterations, it has been a park since, uh, well, the early 1950s. And we have been very fortunate in that the local community has donated their time, their resources to helping us understand the significant history of this region. And in 1985, there was a woman by the name of Donna Omen who sat down with State Park staff and she told us all about growing up at North Head. Her father, Leonard Gabriel, started as a second assistant keeper at some point in time um, soon after Mary Pessinen's death. And we know from Donna Omen that it was not a popular subject of conversation. We also know from Donna that her father rose through the ranks from second assistant keeper to first assistant, later becoming the principal keeper of North Head. And she was able to share a, a number of stories with us. I'll just, I'll share a, a couple of those in particular. Her family was there through the Great Depression and up to essentially the end of World War II. She was one who recounted the bumpy ride along the perpendicular laid plank road. Um, she also shared, um, and this is a great one, for lighthouse keepers, their lives were very regimented. Um, they had to follow the, the strict protocols of the lighthouse service. And one day, Donna's mother was doing the laundry and she was doing the laundry on the prescribed day that it was to be done. However, when the lighthouse inspectors arrived out of the blue, as they were sometimes known to do, they found that the laundry had not been put away at the prescribed time. And so the entire station received demerits. Now, I will add to that, that if if you know anything about the Pacific Northwest and you're attempting to dry your laundry <laughs> outside, you do it when you can. So, you know, just a little bit uh, of difficulties meeting those protocols. And the last story that I will share is when the Admiral Benson ran aground, the whole family went down to the beach in Donna's father, Leonard, his 1920-something Model T Ford and beachcomber law applied at the time. And so they walked away with, I think, three gunny sacks of oranges, uh, among, among other things. So her interview with State Park staff in 1985 gave us this wonderful insight um, of this time period at North Head that we wouldn't have otherwise had. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I was thinking when you talk about the laundry story and you're saying, uh, you know, you can't exactly time things like that to that degree because of the uh, the weather there. I think you're talking mostly about wet wet weather. 
but maybe you're also talking about wind because I know one of the things that Northhead is is known for, uh, like a lot of locations on the in the Northwest, is is wind. Uh, any anything you want to say about that? Well, when I was out at Northhead, um, I used to always tell visitors, it's not a question of if the wind is blowing, what direction and how fast is it blowing. Mm-hmm. The wind is always blowing out at North Head, and it has received the notoriety of as being one of the most windy locations um, in the United States. And there is there are reasons for that, I should say. I mean, number one, the the winter weather that we are known for in the Pacific Northwest gales occur frequently, um, primarily November to February. 15-foot swells and higher are common during the winter, and notable storms, just like on the East Coast, they receive names. Only on the West Coast, ours might have a a little bit more panache, and I, I don't necessarily mean that in a good way, but there was a storm in the 1920s that was referred to as the Great Olympic Blowdown. Um, There was the Columbus Day storm of 1964, one of the worst. And then in recent times, one that I was able to live through, uh, the Great Coastal Gale of 2007. So we are certainly known for windstorms. But the real reason for that is from 1902 to 1955, there was a U.S. Department of Agriculture Weather Bureau that was located between the the principal lighthouse keeper's residence and the lighthouse itself. And throughout their operation, they made regular observations of, of the weather and recorded it. So it's because of this data that we know Northhead <laughs> is so windy. And it certainly has blown quite a bit throughout the years there. Huh, wow. It makes me think of, uh, I'm here in New Hampshire, and we have Mount Washington, which is one of the windiest spots in the world. And there's yes. a, a weather observation uh, station there that's uh, staffed year-round, has been for many years. So certainly brings that to mind. So uh, we've touched on the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center a bit already, and I want to talk more about it in a few minutes. But let's, let's talk about the First Order Fresnel lens that's on display there at the Interpretive Center. As I understand that that lens was actually used in both Cape Disappointment Lighthouse and Northhead Lighthouse. How did that come about that it was used in both of the lighthouses? Well, I can talk a little bit about that. The the lens, you know, started out at Cape Disappointment. And then when Northhead was constructed, it became the primary lighthouse for the Columbia River entrance. And the Cape Disappointment one was um, downgraded to a fourth order. And so um, these lenses were fairly rare, but the lens, you know, like the lantern was part of the package that the government supplied to the contractor building the lighthouses. And so the lens was, was to be transferred. It was actually a fairly common thing. And we have other lighthouses in our system where when they were decommissioned, the entire lantern was taken and sent to another lighthouse. So you know, the, the reuse of a lens and the transfer of one lens from one lens to another was a fairly common occurrence. Right. That lens is gorgeous in the Interpretive Center. I was there in 2015, and that's certainly one of the highlights. The fourth order lens that was used at Northhead is actually on display somewhere. Where Where is that? Well, 
Uh, it does get a little bit confusing. So when Northhead was put into service, May 16th of 1898, the first order lens that had been in Cape Disappointment disassembled, right. moved to Northhead and reassembled. Technology improves through the years. And in 1937, the first order lens was removed from Northhead and replaced with a fourth order lens. Right. Based on my research, the fourth order lens was brighter than the first order lens. And it gets a little confusing. I've had some wonderful volunteers over the years doing some great research. We know that toward the end of the first order lens at Northhead, it was electrified, I think in 1935, before it was removed. And an occulting device, or I forget another way to say that, but there would have been an occulting device that would have rotated around the lens. Right. The first order is a fixed lens. And so when the fourth order was installed in 1937, it was also electric and it had a much higher candle power mm -hmm. than the first order. But it, that also changed the signature a little bit. Um, when the fourth order was installed, it became two white flashes every 30 seconds, generally speaking, which was a slight change from that occulting device around the first order lens. Okay. And I, I will add um, that the fourth order lens is also on display at the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria, Oregon. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the light station at Northhead. There's, uh, as I understand it, there's a number of buildings aside from the uh, the lighthouse tower, and it's a pretty intact light station, which is uh, pretty unusual. It's really a, a pretty complete historic light station. Uh, could you say a little bit about how the other buildings are being utilized at this point? Sure. Well, I think it's important to note that this is probably the most intact light station in the Northwest for the coast. And, you know, it has, it's the, of course, the lighthouse, its original oil houses, the principal keeper's house, the duplex that housed the assistant keepers, um, the barn, and the chicken house are all intact. And there's also two garages that were added to the light station over time. Um, a single garage for the principal keeper and a double garage for the two assistants. Um, so we have essentially every building that was constructed at the end of the 19th century for the light station. The lighthouse is just used for tours. The oil houses are used. One house is a restroom, which I can talk about in a little while. The other one is used for, for storage, essentially. The keeper's houses are used as vacation rentals, as we like to call them in Washington State Park. So you can rent them overnight. Um, the barn is used as a, a gift shop for the friends group, as well as a small interpretive area. And the chicken house is uh, just used for storage at the moment. Wow. So there are two keeper's houses that have, uh, did you say vacation housing? Is that what you like to call it? Overnight rentals. And it's both actually, it's, so it's a total of three. It's a duplex and then another freestanding single house. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, I imagine that's super popular. They're probably booked way ahead of time. Yeah, they are. They're full and it makes it actually a challenge to do some types of work in the area just because uh -huh. it's how full it is. Yeah. Is that, are they, they're not open year round, are they? Or are they? Yes. They are. Okay. 
and people can make reservations online. I know that you, you, you're not probably involved with this on a personal level, but do you, how do people make reservations for that? Uh, through the state parks, Washington state parks website. Okay. Um, and mm -hmm. I might send you to a different system that we use for reservations, but right. uh, it's all arrived at through our website. Yeah, cool. So the lighthouse itself, North Head Lighthouse, is open for climbing. So is it open on a regular basis daily or how does that work? Yes, uh, the lighthouse is currently open. It is open May through September daily, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. for tours. Excellent. Excellent. How many stairs in the lighthouse? Do you know the answer to that question? I do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How many? 69. Okay. Very good. There are 69 stairs to the top with three landings in between. Uh huh. That's not so bad. Uh, lighthouse buffs are used to climbing taller towers than that, most of us. So it's, it's enough. It's enough, but it's not, not crazy tall. Uh, no. So I was reading that there's a, a group, a, a nonprofit that kind of supports uh, the efforts there called the Keepers of the North Head Lighthouse. Uh, would you like to say a little bit about them and uh, what's the relationship of the state park to that that group? Friends are, I mean, if you go back a decade, the the keepers were, I'm going to say instrumental in getting the lighthouse transferred from the Coast Guard to state parks. Congress directed the Coast Guard to transfer that lighthouse and a couple others to state parks in the mid 90s, and it never happened. And the condition of the lighthouse we were operating the lighthouse but we didn't own it and the condition was fairly poor and this group formed to support the lighthouse and to try to force some change and they were successful in lobbying with our people in congress and got the lighthouse transferred and since then have helped financially by contributing to small projects through their sales in their gift shop and uh helping with uh tours and we have a good working relationship with them i would say I, I think it's their most important contribution was early on in getting that transfer because without ownership of the building state parks would not have done what we've done there and made that investment that clarifies things a lot so uh are there volunteers who uh do stuff at the lighthouse to help with the activities the uh with the lighthouse being open and other things going on well, um, we, we do rely upon volunteers in Washington State Parks. I used to always say when I was the coordinator that we couldn't do everything we do without volunteers' support and help. Mm -hmm. And Washington State Park volunteers um, provide the, the formal tours and interpretation of the North Head Lighthouse. And our friends group, the Keepers, they don't necessarily staff the lighthouse, but they do assist us with special events at the lighthouse and um, visitor orientation. They have a regular who likes to hang out in the parking lot and tell <laughs> folks, you know, everything they need to know. So um, we are very dependent on volunteers, both to operate the lighthouse and for its support. If there are people in the area who might be interested in volunteering, are, are you? I imagine it's an it's an ongoing thing. I think a lot of these places you're probably all, always looking for new volunteers. Am I correct in that? And how would people find out more about it? Um, we are always welcoming new volunteers, and if there is anyone interested, I would refer them to the Washington State Parks website mm -hmm. and select the tab regarding volunteering. 
uh, might take a little searching, but um, you will find the information that you're after. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So uh, I was there in 2015. I visited the two lighthouses there on the Interpretive Center in 2015. Northside Lighthouse looked pretty bad at that time. Uh, the base especially was crumbling. Uh, it looked uh, not, not real attractive. Uh, it's, been, it's been a pretty amazing restoration since then. Uh, it's, it took a, a while uh, and uh, probably can't be summed up in just a few words, but could you say basically what's been accomplished there with restoration in recent years? Sure. Well, the, it all started around the time you were there in 2015. We did the first of what I think of as four major phases of construction. And that first phase dealt with the lantern and taking it down to bare metal, repainting, fixing the vent ball, replicating the gallery railing. Uh, after that, in the 2015 to 2017 sort of time frame, we did the first phase of work on the tower itself. Um, which involves stone restoration. That's the stonework in the lighthouse is all sandstone and it's local sandstone, we think. And we actually don't know exactly where it came from. It had significantly deteriorated both because of the quality of the sandstone and because of the environment. The people that we had looking at it were commenting that, you know, this is in pretty tough shape. I mean, it's not catastrophic, but the salt crystallization really did a number on that. And that's when the, the salt water gets driven into the stone and then dries. Mm -hmm. As that salt water dries, salt crystals form, and it's like freeze thaw. It, it exerts a tremendous amount of pressure within the stone. That was the primary deterioration mechanism for the stonework. Um, and so on that first phase of work, we uh, replicated every course of stone above the tower base using the original drawings because we didn't have any stone that was intact enough to use as a pattern. We just went straight back to the original drawings, which we were fortunate enough to have. Uh, we also reinstalled the two windows in the tower and the four windows in the watch room uh, during that phase of restoration. After that, we moved on and did the tower. The next phase would have been in 2017 to 19. We did the tower base and the workroom where we replaced the face of every stone, um, just like we did in the previous phase, or stones in their entirety if they weren't uh, too deep. Mm -hmm. um, but our average patch was, you know, at least 12 inches deep. We restuccoed the building, uh, recoded it, restored the chimney in the second phase of work, and also dealt with the, some interior issues, um, the finishes on the inside doing a skim coat on the stucco on the interior. And we also, during those first two phases, replicated one of the interior closets that had been removed in the workroom and you know upgraded the electrical and sort of the systems in the building at the same time. Um, and then the third phase on the lighthouse itself was the, or the final phase, I guess that'd be the fourth phase, was the, the oil houses. And that was a, uh, effort to restore those, replace the stone, address brick problems, stucco problems. The iron roof trusses had completely corroded through, so we had to rebuild the roofs entirely. Uh, we had to rebuild the exterior doors on the oil houses using the original drawings as a guide. And then in one of the oil houses, put in a restroom for the volunteers who operate the lighthouse. It was about six years of, of work altogether through those four phases. And uh, 
completed everything. And we also, you know, did some side improvements at that same time by replacing the concrete apron around the lighthouse that during one of the phases, um, the phase, the second phase where we did the tower base and replicated the original railing around the base of the lighthouse as well. The original concrete curb was still there and we were able to, to use that and replicate it. Uh, and this was all funded by state parks. Is that right? For the most part, the keepers had a little bit of, they helped us a little bit in the first phase of work in the, mm -hmm. in the lighthouse uh, tower restoration. Um, they helped fund some interior improvements. Up at the top at the lantern room, there's a, you climb this sort of steep curving ladder to get into the lantern room. And there was this plastic lattice that filled in a gap below a bronze rail. And so we were able to design a pretty elegant uh, bronze mesh rail that the, the keepers help us fund, but otherwise was paid for through the state and the state capital program. Well, it looks absolutely fantastic in the pictures I've seen. I hope hope I can get back there and see it in person, uh, get some new new photos to replace the, the ones I got before all that work. Uh, so a little bit more about the interpretive center, the Lewis and Clark interpretive center there. Uh, we talked about the lens that's on display there. Uh, maybe a little bit more about what is there for people to see when they visit there? Well, going by the name alone, um, the vast bulk of exhibits do talk about the Lewis and Clark expedition, 1804 to 1806. But in the lower Columbia River area in the region, there is a wealth of history, you know, upwards of 10,000 years of indigenous history up to first contact and, and through to its establishment as a state park. So in addition to the core of discovery, we also talk about the number of shipwrecks and in the area and provide some actual artifacts from some of those wrecks. We talk about the life-saving service, the, the precursor to the United States Coast Guard that was also active um, at Cape Disappointment. We talk about the military history, the U.S. military established Fort Canby during the U.S. Civil War in 1862, um, and was Fort Canby was active through World War II. So we discuss that history as well. So we cover as much as we possibly can from the core to lighthouses, life-saving shipwrecks in the military, and everything else as much as we can in, in the building. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely worth worth visiting. I recommend it for anybody going out there. So uh, Cape Disappointment Lighthouse, uh, is it accessible? Can it be walked to from the visitor center? It can. And, and I would clarify that just a little bit by saying it can be hiked to. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've that, From personal experience, I understand why you're putting it that way. Yes, it is accessible uh, by roughly a three-quarter three-quarter mile one-way trail. Um, the trail does kind of go down and up both ways. With the accent um, on up, I would say. <laughs> yes. Uh, some of our some of our trails around the park uh, go straight up. We don't really know what switchbacks are, but it is accessible for visitors. Um, the lighthouse itself is on U.S. Coast Guard property. Uh, we're very grateful for Station Cape Disappointment to allowing access to that lighthouse, um, but visitors should be prepared. Um, it is a beautiful hike um, that goes by a very picturesque cove with a 
notorious name called Dead Man's Cove, um, <laughs> but well worth the time of anyone who visits. That's that's I hope not because some of the tourists uh, don't make it all the way to the lighthouse. That's not why it's called Dead Man's Cove, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. no, that's related to our shipwreck history. I would have actually thought so. Yeah. So can you say just a little bit about whale watching at Cape Disappointment? That's a fairly big deal there, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. Um, Cape Disappointment is, um, you know, a, a basalt headland that provides us a nice bird's eye view, if you will, of the mouth of the river. And during the, the gray whale migrations, um, primarily the spring and the winter, the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center is an excellent place to watch these migrations. Um, it can be a little bit difficult in the wintertime with our, you know, 15 foot swells are larger that will make some of those spouts or whatever other, um, site that we are seeing um, makes it a little bit more difficult, but the spring, um, primarily late March to early May, sometime that's extended a little bit into June, the, the Interpretive Center is an excellent place to watch gray whales. Sometimes they've even been known to come into the river and you can literally stare right down on the back of one of them from the Interpretive wow. Center. That must be incredible. Okay, I have a final question for both of you. I want to direct this to, to both of you. This one's for bonus points. Okay, so get ready. Uh, what has been your favorite thing or things? It could be more than one thing. Favorite thing about your involvement with Cape Disappointment State Park and specifically North Head Lighthouse? Who wants to go first? Well, from my perspective, this is, um, it's not very often that you get to do a as complete a restoration as we've done on this building, especially on a lighthouse. It is a really rare opportunity and just sort of being involved in the entire process was really rewarding for me personally and professionally. I, and I really enjoyed, you know, I, I basically spent a decade working on this place and pretty much enjoyed every minute of it. There was a couple of, you know, rough patches, but it was, overall a, a really good experience because of the people that I got to work with, both the designer and the contractors and everybody. You should be very happy and proud of what's been accomplished there for sure. Stephen. You know, I, I would echo what, what Alex just said. And, and I would preface that with a little story. I started as an interpretive specialist at Cape Disappointment in 2008 and my first winter there was an eye-opener. The lighthouse leaked like a sieve. When I knew there was going to be bad weather coming, I would deploy my bucket brigade. And I had buckets positioned at the base of the tower on landings up in the lantern room, sponges spread around to sop up water. And after the worst events after the worst weather, I would empty 10 gallons of standing water from the interior of that lighthouse. There was a time early in my career at Cape D where we operated that lighthouse year round. We were not able to do that anymore, but emptying all that water had to be done before we could open for tours. And to be able to work with Alex throughout this whole process, and, and watch this lighthouse go from a leaking sieve 
with concreted in windows to how it was originally intended to look as as near as we could get to that was an incredibly rewarding experience. Um, I no longer work at the park. I'm still with state parks doing other things, but that period of, of time in my career, will I will always look back fondly on that because as, as Alex said, you know, we, we took that lighthouse from, you know, not bare bones, but from really rough shape to, to what it is today. And that was an incredible process to watch. That has to be so rewarding. And it, just from watching it afar, I've been really, really impressed by what's gone on there in the, the last several years. So again, congratulations on all that. And hope I can get back out there. Uh, I was just in Washington State uh, a couple of months ago, uh, but up around Seattle and the Point No Point Lighthouse, which is the yes. headquarters of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. So I didn't get down your way. But I understand there was just a museum, a maritime museum conference in Astoria, right? And so there were representatives of the U.S. Lighthouse Society on that, at that just uh, very recently. I wasn't able to be there, though, so hopefully. But anyway, uh, Alice McMurray and Stephen Wood, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me today. Again, I want to thank uh, Kristen Quirk, who had a lot to do with putting this together, not able to join us for the interview. But thank you, Kristen. And again, thanks so much, Alex and Stephen. Thank you. Thank you very much. To learn more about North Head Lighthouse and the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center, visit parks.wa.gov and do a search for Lighthouse. Before we sign off for today, I want to remind people about the National Lighthouse Day Dance Contest the U.S. Lighthouse Society is running. You can get all the details on the Society's news blog at news.newslhs.org. Joe Rivers has written an original song called Meet Me at the Lighthouse, and are asking the people dance to the song at their favorite lighthouse during the period of August 5th to 7th, near National Lighthouse Day. Videos of the dances will be posted online, and uh, the, again, there will be cash prizes. All the details, again, are at news.uslhs.org. Michelle, I hope you're ready to dance. Jeremy, I am always ready to dance. <laughs> okay, that's the spirit. <laughs> I like to hear it. Lighthouse people uh, are always up to dance. I yes. Think. Yeah. I want to remind everyone that if you listen to us using Apple Podcasts, we uh, request that you rate and review us. You can visit uslhs.org to learn more about everything the U.S. Lighthouse Society does, including tours, the passport program, the research catalog, preservation grants, and more. Remember that donations and memberships help support this podcast. So, Michelle, do you have a quote before we sign off? I sure do, Jeremy. This is from the song, How Far I'll Go, from the animated film Moana, which, I have to mention, is one of my all-time favorite Disney movies. Excellent. The song was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Quote, See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me, and no one knows how far it goes. End quote. Excellent, I love that. Me too. We'll be back with a new episode next week. For now, thanks so much for listening, and... Keep a good light. Let it shine. Shine, let it shine, let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine.
Let it shine, let it shine